Hello, my name is David Castleman. I'm the founder and CEO of Ecoflix, the world's first not-for-profit streaming video service, where 100% of our subscription fees go directly to fund animal welfare NGOs around the world. Welcome to the Ecoflix podcast, where I have the opportunity to talk with some of the most inspiring people in the world. Every one of them share amazing insights into how we can all make a difference in the fight to save animals and our planet. I think they're amazing and fascinating. I hope you do too. Welcome everyone. Today I'm excited to have a dialogue with someone who should be very famous. Despite all he's done in the world of international undercover investigation and fighting wildlife crimes, Andrea Crosta usually works quietly behind the headlines in 30 countries helping to save animals on the planet. With that intentionally vague introduction, Andrea, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the Ecoflix podcast. Thank you for having me, David. If we can, excuse me, if we can, uh, consistent with my hope of inspiring other people, I'd love to start by walking through how far you are now from where you started. So if we can start with your earliest awareness about your feelings about animals, uh, and then from there, how'd you get to wild animals? And then we'll keep going from that point. Yeah, I was, well, it was a very long uh, circle of life, as sometimes happens. Uh, I was born with this uh, incredible love for animals and wildlife and the desire to protect them since I was uh, like five, six years old, really all my life. Um, I remember for many, many years, my dream was to become a ranger in a national park in Canada or Yellowstone National Park. So that is what I wanted to be. so I, I, in fact, my first master degree was in natural sciences and zoology, and I started working for a, a for a foundation in Italy um, that supported uh, biologists around the world, studying, you know, Amur leopard and snow leopard and cloud and leopard and all kind of cool animals. Um, Not everybody but, knows about clouded leopards; they're very cool. They're very cool, and then they're very endangered. And then so we, we, we supported, I remember, a bunch of scientists and biologists who study them in Southeast Asia. And, um, and then I thought that that was it. I thought that would have been my future, basically. Uh, but then things change. Uh, change. Uh, I, I lost my mother when I was uh, young, so I need to kind of find a better job because back then in Italy, conservation paid uh, absolutely nothing. Right. Uh, it was a difficult field to you know survive so when i never left that uh, but um i also started doing all kind do business mostly high tech i was i remember back in 98 i founded the, one of the very very first e-commerce companies in italy called think italy it was like the prehistory of shopping online back then with microsoft i went all the way up and then all the way down and uh and to make a long story short for many years, almost 20 years, I work in the high tech sector, mostly in the security field, you know, technologies for anti-terrorism, investigation, intelligence, um, and this kind of uh, sort of spy technology for government to go after uh, terrorists. Um, Until uh, I was in Kenya um, in 2010, and and I I was uh, unhappy 
I was working in for a security company. Um, back then, my client was a, a former prime minister of Somalia, so with huge uh, problems, you know, with the terrorist group Al Shabaab in Somalia and and so forth. And I, so my job was to secure his life, basically, um, and was actually right in the middle of the elephant poaching crisis when we were losing tens of thousands of elephants every year for the ivory trade. And I was there right in the middle. I went out with the Kenya Wildlife Service multiple times. I saw these awful scenes and I start asking, well, that, that's crazy because back then uh, the whole world was asking the rangers to solve the problem. And the rangers, I said, how can it be? I mean, uh, they don't even have shoes. And on the other side, you have highly sophisticated poaching and trafficking networks C cannot be. So it must be something else. So because of my past, that's why I, the intro of my past in intelligence and investigation and technology, I ask myself and others, who is using professional intelligence to fight back? You know, after all, uh, elephant poaching and trafficking is part of environmental crime. It's the fourth largest criminal enterprise in the world, up to $260 billion per year. We cannot fight it with, you know, with guns and, 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 and rangers. So I asked who is using professional intelligence. The answer was nobody. And then I said, okay, so I, I resign. Uh, and I said, it's time to go back to my original passion, animals and wildlife. And I want to dedicate the rest of my life to protect them. But what can I do? I didn't want to do something that other NGOs were already doing. So I thought to merge my two professional careers, sort of conservation and uh, intelligence and technology. And my dream was my obsession then became actually was, okay, let's, I will create the first intelligence agency for Earth, an agency uh, capable and willing to, to go all the way up uh, in those uh, international trafficking networks and find who is the response, who are the responsible. And I started hiring former FBI, former CIA, the geopolitical analyst, geospatial analyst, crime analyst, to create what in my dreams would have been one day the first intelligence agency for art. And here we are, uh, roughly 12 years later, with, uh, with something similar to what I had in mind, yes. That's fantastic. And uh, I recall you mentioning the NASDAQ crash played a part in your thinking too. Tell me about that. Yeah, so in 98, I, 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 I you know, these were, I, I had a few sliding doors moment, I have to say, in my life. So, uh, and maybe for the best in this case, I don't know. So in 98, I created uh, Think Italy, it was the, the second e-commerce company in Italy. Um, we, were think, we were selling the best of Italy to the rest of the world. And it was really the beginning of the beginning of pasta by mail, pasta, but you know, coffee machine and sunglasses and design and all wine, all kind of stuff. And uh, I remember '98. Uh, lots of people told me, "Oh, shopping online, it will never take off. It, it will never be a thing." Obviously. <laughs> and I said, well, I think it's, I think it's a thing. I'm sorry. Let me try. Yeah. And I tried, and I, and it was. For a while, super successful it was with the first uh, case history of Microsoft in Italy on shopping online, and uh, you know I was everywhere, you know, on, on magazines and newspapers and giving lectures to universities, and and I thought again, okay, that's it, that my life will be this one, that's what it is, 
And then in 2001, just before uh, signing a big deal with, the, with an investor, the Nasdaq crashed in early 2001. And overnight, I basically lost all the investors and my company value evaluation went to zero, basically, because everyone got scared. And again, everyone thought uh, e-commerce, not a thing. And so I had to sell my company for the debts uh and uh, i made zero absolutely i made a lot of i did a, i mean lots of experience of course but uh <clears throat> that i want to think i like to think that also that experience helped me later on for what i'm doing now you know it was a, it, like a, doing a phd in uh, marketing and communication and technology back then so it, i think it's all good yeah in fact that that is sort of how life works it leads you often episodically but to your passion and Correct. your passion is always there and you just have to figure out how can i do this in a way that i can survive and and enjoy my life it is it's everybody's story uh in <laughs> one way or another it's just that probably no one else took the path you took and often right. that's the case <laughs> people have their own unique path and you know, who would think of economics, NASDAQ crashes, tech sector, <laughs> internet piracy, anti-terrorism, yeah. security protection, Somali pirates. Oh, <laughs> we'll form ELI. Naturally. <laughs> Naturally. So talk to a little bit about what is Earth League International and how does it work? So Earth League International is an organization focused on uh, we can say that we are focused, well, our space is environmental crime, of course, and wildlife crime, but we focus really on the most important environmental criminals and wildlife traffickers in the world. Um, they are often unknown, they are ghosts, no face, no names. Um, our attention, uh, when we think about, for example, ivory trafficking and elephant poaching or rhino poaching or tiger poaching, our attention is often, it's often, uh, on on the poachers, on the local communities, on those who actually kill the elephant or kill the rhino, uh, because they are visible, because they are you know it's it's a brutal scene and it, and we know who they are. So for decades, pretty much everyone, uh, the media, NGOs, government donors, they all focus on them, and they try to solve the problem by going after them. So anti-poaching and 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 it's and it's not uh, it's like uh, if you allow me for a comparison, it's like fighting international narco trafficking, going after the guy who sells dope here around the corner. It's just not going to happen. It's it's not the same thing. It's just asking the local sheriff to fight narco trafficking. Uh, here we are talking about sophisticated transnational trafficking networks. Uh, um, able to move uh, commodities, wildlife products, money, people, because they're often into other crimes across the globe. So my idea was to create an organization sophisticated enough and with the right people able to, first of all, identify who they are. So the, our job in the field is, first of all, we use, of course, we do a lot of undercover operations. So we have multiple teams with multiple nationalities and their job is to um, first of all, understand who are the kingpins, who are the most important people in those legal supply chain, and then engage them directly, uh, or start recruiting sources and informants around these networks to collect information about them. 
And by collecting information, I mean everything, not just uh, what they do and what they smuggle, but where they live and how they move the money and uh, where they invest uh, their the, the, in real estate. So where do what they eat at breakfast, where they send the kids, the kids to school, absolutely everything. Also, because these people very often have constantly mix uh, overlap illegal with illegal activities so they also have a lot of legal activities import export and restaurant and supermarkets and this and that so we collect information about everything so we are a small intelligence agency for earth meaning we use we employ the same methodology we have the same mindset of an intelligence agency but we just focus on environmental crime um the the goal is to one of the goals one of the most important goals is to be able to put together confidential intelligence brief that we share only with law enforcement to help them go after these people because very often again as i said before they're unknown so uh, the vast majority of uh, in, in 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 very often when we share this information with law enforcement we work also here in the us with law enforcement in the us they don't they know nothing about these networks and these people so imagine how easy it is for the traffickers to operate if they are invisible and that's it's, our job is to make them not you know to make them visible yeah they're not only invisible they're not looking they're not trying to find no. them or figure it out so they can that's doubly right. invisible because they're not even on their trail exactly and how about your role where do you fit into all that do you oversee everything or I oversee everything. Yes, back in the day, in the early days, I was also, I was actually also doing everything. I was in the field doing investigation. Then we got the more sophisticated we got, the the more useless I became in the field because we, you need professionals with different nationalities, different languages. Uh, you know, we these traffickers are are Asian, Middle Eastern, South American, European, even American. So you need the, the different. So my my work is. Uh, is the supervision and of course uh, uh, mission design so i put together the teams i design the mission i decide what we're going to do and which the timing and where of course my work is also to interface with law enforcement agencies to, to make sure that at the end they not only receive our information but also understand our information uh, and of course everything else managing an ngo so fundraising and you know there's a tons of other ton of other work you know not in the field uh, um but i have a fantastic team i mean i keep saying you know i i mean my work would be nothing without my team i have the best team in the world i'm super proud of them everyone each of them handpicked uh, or they approach me that depends and uh so yeah we are a small but really 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 nice group of people and is that work dangerous can be dangerous if you make mistakes um, um, in the field. That's why we, we we keep a low profile. We we our job is basically in the field is a sort of a social engineering kind of work. So you have you we we are really good in becoming friends of of the traffickers, of the bad people, of the bad guys. Um, and um, we don't use weapons, we don't buy anything illegal, we don't commit anything legal, we're just really good in listening and absorbing information from the right people. Um, and um, so our teams, our teams in the field, uh, our undercover investigators have been doing this for decades. And, and it's, you know, it's, there's always a, comp a risk component, of course, but 
we <clears throat> we take a lot of precautions on my on my side of course i'm the public face of this organization so this is one of the reasons why uh, uh sometimes we don't share a lot of information with the public because it will endanger my myself and and my family and some of and some of my team members uh, who are known. The, the identities of the people, of the investigators, of course, are confidential, even within our organization. Our board, for example, they don't know who they are because I'm really obsessed with the security. But I'm my face is known, so I have to take some precautions for that. Right. And recently, uh, you've had some publicity from films. Um, hence my background, I thought I would trap pattern your your trafficking history and the ivory game is uh, a netflix film now that uh, talks about some of your work and you talk about first of all where things were when you started getting into the ivory wars and um about the film itself and how things are now yeah <clears throat> so back then it was really really bad it um, um it's again still the middle of the elephant poaching crisis uh Estimates say that we were losing 30, 40, even 50,000 elephants per year uh, for ivory trade all over Asia, especially all over Africa, especially in some parts of Africa. And we, it was our first uh, sort of uh, client, so to speak, the elephant, uh, the first, our first big project. Um, and so again, in, in I, we decided, okay, let's not focus on the poacher in Tanzania or Kenya who kills the elephant. There's anti-poaching for that, which is very important, of course, but it's just a patch, right? It's just it's not, it doesn't go to the root of the problem. And also, let's try not to dwell too much into the demand side, because it's a really complicated matter in China, convincing uh, a billion people to change their... Uh, and we decided, okay, let's focus on the trafficking part, and let's try to understand who are the most important international ivory traffickers how they work and uh, and so while we were doing this work uh, from tanzania kenya east africa all the way to hong kong and southeast asia and then china we were approached by um terra matter factor studios and richard latkani the director and they asked us hey would you like to be in a documentary that we are putting together and it was our first uh, my first experience with media and documentary and i was uh, a bit afraid at the beginning because of on the one hand we were a small ngo so we need a bit we needed a bit of exposure and help also for fundraising on the other hand i was really afraid to to put in danger my team basically uh, because you know you never know when you have uh, cameras and around so we had a long discussion with the director we met multiple times uh, i understood they, they were a really serious organization serious company and um, then leonardo dicaprio decided to executive produce this documentary and so we we said okay yes let's do it and it was an incredible adventure they we filmed for i think almost a year in multiple countries and uh, and the film uh, the ivory game uh I think was a really, really important film uh, in the fight against elephant poaching and ivory trafficking because um, among many other things, uh, he pushed, in my opinion, he gave the last push to the Chinese government to finally ban the market, the ivory market in China that until then was legal. 
And that was a gigantic problem because when you have a legal market of something, in this case, ivory in China, for years, for decades, has been used to launder incredible amount of illegal ivory. And, and, that, and the international community have been, had been asking China to ban this market forever. And this documentary, I think, gave the last push. It was, uh, I remember, was uh, the documentary was invited to China to the Beijing Film Festival. It cannot happen anymore. But then it happened. Uh, it won the the, for the the film festival, and and then uh, later on that year, they the Chinese government finally banned the the legal market legal ivory market in China and helped a lot because uh, it, it poaching got better elephant poaching got better it's still there but definitely we see less ivory traffic in here is this the second ban you're referring to or the first the very the big one the first until uh, until then uh, there were shops everywhere in china selling ivory a lot of carving facilities to 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 work ivory and it was a mess because yes in theory there was a system to differentiate legal from illegal but it was as our as we show in our investigation, you can see it in the in the film, there were a lot of um, loopholes and a lot of ways uh, traffickers in China just were able to sell illegal ivory as legal, uh, just changing a label, basically. And that was a, was a gigantic problem, of course. Right. I mean, you can still go to airport uh, gift shops and they'll tell you it's woolly mammoth ivory. Then it, that, that, yeah, exactly. And sometimes they, you know, they, they will tell you, oh, no, this is mammoth, mammoth ivory. And that actually was elephant ivory. So it was a big mess. Um, and also from a law enforcement point of view, every time you see ivory in China, is it legal? Is it not legal? I mean, this was a really mess. And now at least it's illegal. And so it's a bit easier to fight it. Yes, it's still a problem, obviously. Uh, poaching continues. But yes. uh, China has a big role in all that. And it's good that they have gone back twice now and banned ivory, so it's, it's good. Yeah. yeah. There's an, another problem that's quite underway right this minute, led to your second uh, film on Nat Geo, uh, Sea of Shadows. Can you talk about the Vaquita and the Totoaba issues? Because that's quite an unknown subject to many people. Yeah, so if a few a couple of years after uh, the the ivory investigation, we got bigger, so we we started to do other, to started to follow other problems and see what if we could help in other in other other areas of the world. And my my attention got caught by this incredible situation in in Baja California, Mexico, in the Sea of Cortez, where um there is uh, this uh, little porpoise so like it's a relative of whale basically it's called vaquita vaquita in spanish means little cow because he has she has this cute face of a little cow and back then when we exactly on your on your left on your right uh back then when we started working on this um issue was 2017 we had uh, there were already there were still maybe I would say maybe 30, 40, maybe more vaquita. So already really a few left. And the problem was, it is, it still is, that um, in the Sea of Cortez, together with the vaquita, there is also a fish called totoaba. And uh, the swim bladder of this fish is one of the most uh, precious illegal wildlife commodity in China on the black market for the traditional Chinese medicine. 
um, in, you have to understand that in, in, in Asia in general, but especially in China, they are really crazy for swim bladders for all kinds of fish. They import uh, um, thousands of tons of swim bladders from around the world every year, mostly legal. But the top of the top, you know, the top of the line is unfortunately the swim bladder coming from this specific endemic fish in Baja California. And to catch this fish, they use illegal gillnets, a really, really strong, big, long illegal gillnets. And these gillnets kill everything else, not just this fish, including the vaquita. They kill whales and sharks and turtles and birds. So it's they're, they're killing machines. And the vaquita dies, this little porpoise dies as bycatch. It drowns, uh, getting entangled. So we, again, like we did with the ivory before, uh, we said, okay, everyone is, focus, is focusing on the illegal fishermen that actually do this, but it must, there must be more than that. And so we started investigating and we quickly understood that behind the, what you saw, just illegal fishermen fishing the, uh, the Totoaba, there were actually uh, sophisticated transnational trafficking networks run by Asian nationals in Mexico, and they were making millions of dollars from this Totohaba swim bladder. You have to imagine that a fisherman in Baja California gets maybe can get up to three, four thousand dollars a piece for one swim bladder. They usually make six hundred dollars a month fishing. Okay, imagine the temptation. Of course, they do it. And the same swim bladder in China is goes for fifty, sixty thousand dollars a piece incredibly incredibly profitable in fact it's so profitable that also drug cartels and organized crime in mexico jump into this interesting market and so we discover all that before that it wasn't before we started to work was pretty much unknown this part of the problem and again like it happened with the ivory uh, while we were doing this the same company terramater in austria and the same director of the ivory game approach us and say hey uh do you have any, any any interesting story and this is a funny story actually and i said listen i actually actually i called them actually and i told them i have this really interesting story this unknown uh, uh marine mammal called vaquita going extinct because of this other problem with the with this other fish i think you should do a documentary about that and i remember that they they couldn't even pronounce vaquita totoaba they say what you are talking about andrea that it's unknown nobody will care about this it's not like elephants nobody knows about the vaquita and i was insisting i think you should really do a documentary it's a really cool story important story because that's exactly everyone and the answer was no no i'm sorry i'm sorry it's uh, it's too obscure and then a few weeks after my call leonardo dicaprio made the same call to them and of course uh, Leonardo has more weight than myself. Just a little, yeah, <laughs> just a little. And then in three weeks they were in production, and uh, and then we filmed the the Sea of Shadows, National Geographic, and now you can watch it on Disney Plus. And um, and uh, for the first time, the world knew get knew about this this little. And unfortunately, since then things went go went. Uh, I mean, didn't didn't improve at all. We never stopped working uh, on that. We actually work, help law enforcement agency to arrest uh, some of the most important uh, Totoaba traffickers of this swim bladder. But the latest estimate are 
probably maybe around 10 vaquitas are left in the whole sea of cortez so we are we are witnessing um uh extinction uh, of the very first big extinction in our in, in the past uh, centuries i think of a mammal in real time and it's super sad it really is and uh it's just an example of awareness and priorities i mean nobody here thinks about it because they don't have any relationship with the vaquita or the totoaba and of course in china they have a different relationship with animals to begin with and yeah, it correct. is a very uh, frustrating thing i mean china is a very evolved country in many many ways and sometimes i think it's just a question of priorities uh something that's so valuable from an economic perspective gets overlooked in terms of the humanity of it uh in fact I would say in all of Asia. Um, yeah, no, it's not just China. And they also have different traditions. Um, so it's uh, it's always uh, I, I I always try not to point my finger against anyone. You know, I'm I'm American, but also European, Italian, and we 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 did our part, Americans and Europeans, to destroy half of the planet in the past century. So we can, we, I don't think we have the right to point the finger to anyone. Yeah. We just need to politely say that, hey, we are getting, we are, we are really destroying the planet right now. And, uh, and so <clears throat> we need, as I always say, at the end of the day, we need China's collaboration to, 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 to solve the problem. Without it, it's, it's not, it would be there's no There's no question about it. And, and as I said, they're very evolved in their own ways. I mean, you know, talk about the panda. They're incredibly protective of the panda. They have elephants. They have, uh, like, they had the elephants in the south of China, and, and you cannot touch them, of course. <laughs> well, not only that, they allow them literally to walk through their cities, and they're, exactly. Exactly. they're not killing them. It's it's a very interesting and complicated problem, and, and you're more aware of it than most. You're working in 30 countries now. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah, we're sorry. My dog is this uh, year asking. He's welcome. <laughs> uh, it's um, well, it's it's. We have to be careful not to stretch ourselves, of course, because we are still a small organization. So we we usually pick uh, maybe two, three big projects every year now, and so we constantly. But we have to uh, to work in multiple countries simply because traffickers work in multiple countries. It's it's almost never from A to B. Uh, in the case of uh, Totoaba, for example, and the Vaquita, it started in Mexico, but then the US is a transit and destination country. And then from US, from, for example, the Los Angeles port or airport, it goes to China, but it doesn't go to China directly, it goes through Taiwan, through Singapore, through Hong Kong, through Vietnam. So we have to be able to operate as the traffic, like as the traffickers do, because we follow them. Uh, and that's why we we work all over the places. For example, in the past few years, we work a lot on Jaguar trafficking, the Jaguar parse trafficking, and we started in one country. And at the end, we ended up working in eight countries because these traffickers are everywhere: Bolivia, Colombia, Suriname, Ecuador. So that's that's why we are all over the places. And explain what parts they want from Jaguars. Yeah, that's another very sad, uh, obscure story. They. Um, they're into especially fangs and bones. And, and, it, and strangely enough, it comes from the origin of the problem is 
their obsession for Tiger. Okay, so they've been poaching Tigers for a long time for the same reason, for the same parts, bones and, and fangs. The fangs, the fangs, they like to put the fangs in jewelry and, and have it here. And, and with the bones, they make a tiger, tiger bone wine, alcohol, and, and they like to drink alcohol with, with tiger bones inside. But with the ears, I mean, the tigers, you know, I, it's in, important to remind people what happens when we lose, when we let these traffickers <coughs> operate for too long. Uh, we around a hundred years ago, we had a hundred thousand tigers in the wild, and now we have around three, four thousand tigers. If left. that, if, if that, if that. So that what happens when you just overlook this problem? And we are trying to, I mean, we try to make sure that will not happen to jaguars. And the reason why they're doing this to jaguars is because it's getting more and more difficult to find tigers in the wild. <laughs> And uh, and uh, unfortunately for the jaguar, is the long is the only big cat that has fangs and bones as big as tiger. So they poach the jaguar in Latin America. They take the bones and the fangs. They ship it. They smuggle to Asia. But then there is actually it becomes a tiger. <laughs> exactly. It's like a, so they even they fooled it. So it's a bizarre thing. And, but they are destroying the jaguar population in some parts of Latin America. So for the past uh, three, four years, we have been looking into this problem. We have been helping local prosecutors in Bolivia and other countries to arrest these people. And we are also, as uh, now we do more and more, we are actually shedding lights on the links between this kind of wildlife trafficking and other serious crime. It's, it's called crime convergence. So the same people and the same networks are into uh, tiger, uh, jaguar traffic, you know, shark traffic, you know, totoaba trafficking, but also money laundering, human smuggling, human trafficking, narco trafficking. So it's that that this is called crime convergence. It's a very, it's a big important part of our work now. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's actually a little surprising to me that more people haven't gone after clouded leopards because of the incredible beauty of their fur. Yeah, absolutely, and absolutely. Yeah, they're yeah. so secretive. They're hard to find. They're kind of like hard to find, hard to catch. Exactly. That's probably that's the reason. Yeah. Yeah. And there are not that many of them to begin with because they're in their their role in the ecosystem is fairly small. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, in all of this, you're you're starting out and you're finding out about all these things that are going on. At some point, you asked yourself, "Where the hell is the government of any country? Where where are they? What are they doing?" Can you talk us through kind of that evolution and how you found a way to get them involved? Yeah. So when I started building this organization, I you know I spent at least two years just studying everything, studying other NGOs, study studying government um, agencies. I was trying to understand what they were doing, how they were doing it, and and. The, so there are, I think, two many problems, but two big problems. One is, as you can imagine, David, in many countries, wildlife crime or environmental crime is not a priority. That's at all. At all. And because it's not a priority, there are no resources, no money, and no right. people. And then they do what they can, but they just do. They can do very little. Well, and the, and that goes along <clears throat> with some the culture of the countries. Even their domestic animals are treated like. Oh, yeah. They don't even act as if they have a, an existence 
a lot a live existence. They bundled them up on sticks and carried exactly. them. So it's sad as can be, but it's not as surprising in those countries that they don't value wildlife particularly. Oh no, it's not surprise. It's not surprise, absolutely. And uh but when they do, they really have just little resources. And I I know personally uh public officials and 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 law enforcement uh, officers around the world that who truly would like to do something about it but they they don't even have the money to put the gas in the car so can you imagine the second big problem is that uh, uh these transnational trafficking networks fly so high and operate at on another level that are no match for law enforcement agency they to begin with i don't know right now a single country where we work in latin america southeast asia and africa where they have for example chinese translator and asian translators they don't have it so how can you investigate a chinese run or asian run trafficking network if you don't understand what they're saying to begin with so again as i said before these traffickers are ghosts no names no faces and they speak a language that nobody understands so that's how so it's really difficult so my our job in the field is to do exactly that to do the first part of the work that they cannot do and just then and then serve them on a silver plate okay this is the person this is the facility just raid them and you will find the stuff this is how we help them uh but sadly this is a this is a situation we would need uh not only more organization like us of course to do because we're just a bunch few organization in the world doing this what we do but also more money for training and serious capacity building in those countries is we actually have to move from capacity building to multi-year mentorship you know we have to stay with these people for years right now capacity building often is just like you go there and you train them for a year and then you disappear for three years and it's not it's useless <clears throat> I mean in the United States alone we have you know how many different agencies the FBI the CIA the DEA Homeland Security I mean are any of them have you managed to get any of them involved in this yeah 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 so we starting uh uh, maybe four or five years ago we started to develop really good relationship working relationship with uh, uh, some u.s law enforcement agencies i can mention for example um hsi um, homeland security investigations and u.s fish and wildlife service but we also share information with uh, with other agencies uh, because they can do what many other agencies are agencies around the world cannot do so they have the this in they're not only willing but also capable to investigate these people at the highest possible level um one way uh we found that to involve to get the interest and the attention of these agencies is exactly crime convergence so sometimes if you if you come to one of those agencies with a case just about shark fins for example maybe sometimes it's not enough because they have a lot of uh, other problems <clears throat> but if you show them that the same people involving sharfing trafficking is also involved in human smuggling and money laundering crime convergence that all of a sudden you have their attention and and that's exactly how we and we had some really successful cases this year for example in uh, in uh, in may uh, there were some big arrests in southern california uh, um, and uh, I in my assessment is that uh, the 
the, the persons arrested were some of the most important wildlife traffickers in in the continent and uh, and it started from us we worked two years on these people and then we hand them over to law enforcement agency they did the, and did the, the rest so it's working it's possible to do it that's fantastic and and it's led i think in part to an awareness of what you're doing uh which put eli on the cover of the new yorker magazine recently tell us a, about that and your your goal to educate us the public in general right so we are as by because of you know the nature of our work as you can imagine we are we have to be secretive very often we have a, like a, a, a like a secret side that we don't share with anyone but at the same time we are a, an environmental ngo and we owe our public and donors and and followers um not only an explanation of what we do but also we, we have to try to educate and inform them and and instead of doing many small uh you know little projects here and there we like to do <clears throat> to partner with big media once in a while and do something big and and uh, last year the we start working with the new yorker uh uh it was like a almost a year of work is uh, it was incredible as um it was actually almost like filming another documentary with the difference that he was not filming he was taking notes the the reporter but that's exactly the same thing we embedded him in our team for nearly a year uh so he could see everything we do uh, we, he was uh, with us in the field and uh and at the end uh, in may and end of may of this year 2023 we were the cover of the new yorker uh, magazine uh and not only was fantastic for us of course as you can imagine it was actually pretty game changing but it's also for the cause you know it's for the first time the 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 sentence environmental crime was on the cover of the new yorker and this as very important, especially because I personally am obsessed with trying to engage people who are not really into these problems. Uh, in other words, you know, very often you have to admit, David. Sometimes we tend to, you know, preach to the choir. Kind of, we are the same people, and we are talking about the same thing. And right, and and, and it's okay, but it's, we don't change things by just keep talking. We have to engage. Uh, people who are not aware of it and maybe who even don't care about it, but it, we engage them in a different ways. Right. And, yeah, and, and Yorker was that exactly. We are fantastic. In and it just reached a much bigger audience. I mean, <laughs> exactly. we did a panel together, I don't know, was it over a year ago? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it is interesting because we are both NGOs and doing different things, but we're doing the same things just a different way. Different way, of course. And, um, and there's nothing quite like initiating the uninitiated the people who absolutely blissfully are going along through their day and they aren't living with the absolute awareness that sometimes we suffer from because it's very depressing to feel like the problem is untouchable absolutely, absolutely. getting out to the large voice of the population really helps to bring some light onto the yeah. subject and that yeah. produces as you pointed out not only donations which GLI needs and almost every NGO needs Absolutely. but it, it does I think more to help people appreciate how all of us need to be in this fight it's not a just leave it up to the NGOs or even leave it up to wildlife crime people if there are any left in the few years the real question is understanding how in this case the criminal exploitation of nature impacts 
the world. And, and you're yes. probably in the best position to explain that. Can you walk us through it? Absolutely. So it's not uh, <clears throat> just about animals, but you might not care about animals, of course. Uh, first of all, there's a huge human toll. As I started to I remember back in the day when we were working on ivory, we launched a campaign about the human toll of ivory, of ivory trade, of the legal ivory trade, and people getting killed, uh, people getting uh, being pushed into crime by traffickers. Uh, there is a lot of human rights abuses associated with environmental crime, illegal fishing, for example, slaves on boats, uh, and as I said before, a lot of these top international traffickers are also into other crimes so human trafficking narco trafficking so it's the criminal exploitation of nature is in the hands of really really bad people who, who do really really bad things to people as well and also uh, another link that uh, very often people don't make is to climate change. So environmental crime is linked to climate change. Illegal deforestation, the destruction of entire parts of the Amazon that has, and it's it, you know, criminal organization are behind that, of course, has a huge impact on, on climate change. The destructions of the oceans has a huge impact on climate change. So environmental crime, uh, it's, it's uh, in my opinion, still under under not only underfunded but also in terms of anti-crime but also under evaluated understudied and my work is to try to raise the bar of the conversation and and explain people hey just let me let me explain you why it's important for you to pay attention to environmental crime yes i think that's really a great um a great message because a lot of people wonder why should i care it, it isn't affecting me. Right. And it's a sad thing that people think that way in the first place, because there is a connection between us, whether you know it or not. But I get that. I understand that. I mean, I've seen that thinking in a lot of different areas. Um, so it's not a surprise to me. And, and people are not wrong, per se, to think that. They're just uninformed. And, exactly. And we need people like you uh hopefully through this podcast and others to inform them about how what they do or don't do can make a difference in this area. And, and most people do have that sort of question, like, what can I do? Well, you know, we're, you know, I'm just one person. And I always have gone back to a, a little mantra we use in Ecoflix. What difference can I make? Said 5 billion people at the same time. <laughs> exactly. The answer is you can make a big difference. You have Absolutely. to act as part of the world uh, of concern. So what are your thoughts on what people can do after hearing what you had to share and helping them appreciate what's really going on out there? What can they do? Uh, it's 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 a question that I get often, of course, and it's not always easy to answer uh, because the first I mean, first of all, you should care that it start with that okay and and if you as a person as a parent for example for whatever upbringing you had or whatever you don't care maybe you can start working on your kids okay maybe you can help them to care and that's it's in itself it's already a huge thing to to do i always say that my work i don't think i'll see any meaningful changes in my lifetime but my work is to make sure that the next generation will have something to protect actually left and and that's why 
if you're a parent, for example, you already have a huge task, a very important task to make sure that your kids care about these problems. Another thing, of course, is to donate uh, to to organization like us because <clears throat> we 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 actually do a work on behalf of everyone else, and uh, and uh, and and it's not easy in this period of time, especially to to raise the needed money, and also on a communication point of view, you know, for you use uh, social media for something useful and not. If I allow me, allow me to say stupid, like very often we use social media for, uh, so use it to engage your uh, your uh, your representative, your, your your you know congressman. You re use it to uh, try to explain other people why you pay you need to pay attention to environmental crime. Uh, why why uh, if you are if you care about climate change, then you should care about many other things, not just oil and, uh, and, 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 you know, and fossil fuel. There are many other things that affect climate change. <clears throat> so it's a combination of, uh, of caring, helping other people to care and spread the message in the right way, I think. Yeah, I think telling friends and family is a bigger thing than most people appreciate. You're not lecturing, you're just no, sharing no. what you've learned. And people will find it important and interesting if they care at all about what's going on. And pretty soon you'll have a mobilized planet. People who are exactly. uninformed have no chance. Exactly. So the more you can share the message, the better off it is. And I guess for that reason, among many, I really want to thank you for coming on today and telling us about your amazing work. And um, I hope and wish that it's well into the next couple of years that you'll say, wow, we really are making a difference. It's not for the next generation. You've done something pretty special for this generation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your family and friends who want to join with us to truly make a difference. Remember, think big, start small, but act now. Thank you. Thank you.